Alright, here we are on another episode with Musings with Matt and Friends. I have my friend Linz Jacos? Jacos? Jacos, but it's okay. Like three people have ever gotten it right on the first try. I was close. Jacos. <laughs> so, and I'm. Animals, like a J that flies and a cow that says moo. <laughs> I met I met Linz while I was working well I was helping out the Andrew Valinsky campaign this past year and um, she is a very interesting person and some very knowledgeable and has a lot of experience especially in politics so I just kind of wanted to bring Linz on and talk to her about kind of the experience uh, experiences that uh, has that she's had so hello. Hey. So yeah, I, I actually um, use they them pronouns. Um, My bad. I identify as, as gender queer, gender neutral. So okay. um, no worries. Uh, totally easy to forget. But yeah, I'm definitely glad to be here. It was. It feels like a million years ago that we met. I think it was in um, the Claremont High School gym yep. space. Um, Bernie and Sanders. Andy Volinsky was speaking and opening for Bernie at a big event and seems like a million years ago. It really does. Waving down people, handing out literature, giving people Volinsky stickers mm-hmm. right before Bernie won big in the primary um, last year. And then our lives were plunged into very different pace <laughs> yeah i was gonna say it was that was that was right before the pandemic um it was like february i think or late i don't know like late january february i think it was because it was before the primary in new hampshire which is in february so that that feels like a that feels like a different world at this point definitely i i feel like i've just been in my little dover bubble <laughs> most of this year since I moved in May, which is good and safe, but I definitely miss traveling around to different parts of the state and and working with people, so. Mm -hmm. So tell me me about your um, experiences. How did you start getting involved in politics? So I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I lived there through first 18 years of my life through high school. And um, I first started thinking about politics when I joined speech and debate in high school. And Mm -hmm. I knew I was definitely more left-leaning than my parents. Um, My dad um, is really conservative. And my mom um, at that time was sort of apolitical, you know, a little bit of a swing voter, but mostly stayed out of it. And Mm -hmm. um, I had a really awesome Uh, speech and debate coach in high school who was like everybody's like best friend and mom and I got to debate things like you know a a government a just government should provide health care to its citizens and stuff like that even more it was just a place for people that didn't you know fit into a lot of other places Mm -hmm. in school to um, I feel like high school was sort of my or speech and debate was sort of like my glee club <laughs> in right. high school um, a little bit. Um, and then I also got more political when 
Um, I realized I had feelings for my best friend when I was 15 and Mm -hmm. I came out as queer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ended up actually, um, when my dad found out, um, I ended up going to a pretty conservative Christian school. Oh, so so your dad like moved you to a different school? Um, Well, he told me that if I wanted to go to a um, school out of state for college, it it had to be a Christian school because he was hoping it would straighten me out. Um, Oh, God. I got to college, and yeah, I I didn't feel like, you know, Pepperdine was the kind of place I would have chosen on my own, and they didn't even allow an LGBTQ group to exist on campus. Oh, my God. Took me a... Yeah, that must be so, that must have been hard. How long was this ago? It was, yeah. Um, I went to college from t- 2008 to 2012. Okay, all right. So just to put things in perspective, you you were in college when I was in high school. Got it. <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah, um, but that sounds like traumatic, and that sounds like a very God, I, I, that sounds just awful. Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Like, growing up, like, with not being able to be yourself? Yeah, I mean, you know, my mom was always supportive of, of me. Um, so, like, that helped a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. at least I had one parent who was accepting. Um, but at Pepperdine, I definitely, um, you know, took a while to find a niche of people that I felt um, good around and by my junior year I got a group of friends together and we decided we wanted a group to be recognized and we met in library study rooms and our dorms and empty classrooms um, just sort of informally and then my senior year we started a real campaign and we I got um our club petition denied, and mm-hmm. we started a petition that um, 10,000 people signed on to. We got 20 national media hits, alumni called in to boycott donations, all of the grad schools and a bunch of departments endorsed mm-hmm. our campaign, but it still came down to the Board of Regents and um, people high up in the administration, a very small group of people at the top, mm-hmm. ignoring what the majority of students and, and faculty were were fine. Sounds like even if they were you know, the most outspoken people about it. Yeah, sounds like something that uh, you can definitely compare something to compare in our society to because I mean, there's a lot of things where the um, very top controls and then the majority of the people don't get what they want. I feel like that's a systemic systemic problem that we all that um, we continue continuously fight. Definitely, and it really made me, like, I was already a political science major, but Mm -hmm. having that experience organizing, like, outside of the classroom really taught me way more than anything I ever learned in a poli-sci class, and it made me realize that I wanted to organize. Like, when I first started in college, I thought, like, oh, maybe I'll do some policy researchy thing, but I didn't really know what organizing looked like, and then I accidentally sort of fell into it. And I realized I wanted to work with students on whatever issues they cared about um, or in a broader sense after that. So 
I took a job after college organizing students around voter registration in Colorado um, with a team registered 13,000 students and young people to vote in Colorado in 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, That was really exciting. That felt like it was making a big difference. And then the organization I was working for moved me out to um, Western Massachusetts Mm -hmm. after um, for that second semester of that school year. And so I was working with students organizing on a zero waste campaign on, on two campuses out there. So, um, so you grew up in Arizona, went to, uh, went to school in Colorado, and then went to Massachusetts? Went to school in California. Went to school in California. Colorado for my first year out of college. Yeah. So, you, so you've, you've been around. Um, like when it come, what I mean, like around different places and around the um, um, the country a little bit. Yeah, I, I guess you're adding me. If I ever decided to run for office in New Hampshire, I'm not a real homegrown Granite Stater. Like that's okay, <laughs> everybody though. Everybody has to be here. <laughs> I know it does. It does definitely feel like that in New Hampshire, where like um, the homegrown Granite State people like. There's definitely a bias for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I came out to I came out to New Hampshire um, six years ago um, for a job working to get big money out of politics. So ah. I was working with a a coalition of groups um, actually in, in Western Mass. After I decided I needed a little bit of a break from organizing students full-time. I I volunteered with a campaign out there that was around an anti-corruption bill Mm -hmm. that would get big money out of politics. And that was sort of another level of me realizing the small group of people at the top, the reason that they're winning a lot of the time is because they have way more money than the grassroots organizations do and regular people. So, um, it sounds really cliche. It sounds really cliche, but it's true. Yeah, on healthcare. Yeah. Big drug companies are buying off politicians and the oil industry. You mm-hmm. name it. And so, even though it's a thing that feels kind of abstract and not like directly the the biggest problem in your life, um, I knew I really wanted to work to to fix those those structural money and politics problems. And that, that's well, I mean in my opinion big money and politics cuz it affects it affects like every issue. Like you just you just kind of hit on it. It affects um, people not having health care and insurance companies overcharging you for medicine. And it affects the oil companies um, bringing in billions of dollars while they pollute our air and causing our climate to change. And it affects it affects income and wealth inequality. It affect you know, it affects how, you know, Am- like Amazon doesn't pay any federal taxes or any other corporation big corporation pays any federal taxes. Um have you have you ever seen the 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 short uh skit that of George Carlin talking about the big club? Have you ever seen that? No, I don't think so. No? Alright, well I have to I'll have to send it to you. He he did like a short like three minute three minute um uh, skit or what? Well, not skit, but like I just can't think of the word right now. But like uh, a piece. Yeah, sk- yeah. He he was talking and he was talking about how like 
um, you know, the 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 big club in this. He called them a big club, the the one percent in this in this country. And he said uh, about how they don't want they don't want people to get education be- because they don't want people to critically think, and they don't want people they don't want um, they don't want them to be able to. They don't want them to be able to be smart enough to you know sit around the kitchen table and figure out that you know we have a system that threw us overboard 40 years ago and we're getting lower wages and more you know longer hours more overtime and um yeah and i just find it it's 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 true and it affects so many parts of our society especially being someone who who is in school for um to be a, a, a social worker and works in education you know i see the inequality and the poverty and the the trauma that results in wealth inequality and all those things it's just like it's just like a trickle-down effect that affects so many different aspects of our society definitely yeah so what what would be your um most passionate issue that you've worked on or your most passionate like movement that you've worked on or something like that So I think my favorite campaign that I've worked on was the Freedom New Hampshire campaign that passed transgender non-discrimination protections Mm -hmm. in 2018. Um, I managed that campaign and it felt so good um, to be, you know, I was someone who right before I moved to New Hampshire, I had just come out as non-binary or genderqueer in western mass sorry about the pronoun thing Um, i knew that and i forgot i'm sorry no worries no worries i correct reporters all the time um and so yeah it i um i really moved to new hampshire not really knowing anyone and when i started to you know introduce myself as you know i prefer gender neutral Mm -hmm. terms and they them pronouns as so many people like looked at me like I had two heads and were yeah. just like completely like not at all familiar with the concept. And so I, re- I remember going to a trans group, uh, like a support group, um, like group therapy that had six or seven people and everyone else was, was binary, um, either a trans woman or a trans mm-hmm. man. And then I was just sort of in the middle hoping to find somebody that had a similar experience as me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened later down the road. Like after I went to that group, you know, another six months or a year, there were more, there were some people who thought that they, um, you know, were a trans man and then realized that they were actually non-binary mm-hmm. um, and, and new people that came in. And I started going to slam poetry, slam for your die and, Manchester, New Hampshire was a really great space that uh, I used to write a lot more poetry than I've had the creative energies for right now. um, There's a lot of people that have a lot of different um, personal narratives with gender there that um, I really resonated with through poetry. And then by the time um, that campaign was taking off and I came on to to work on non-discrimination. Um, it was so cool to see how much the community had grown in yep. the couple of years since I had moved to New Hampshire. And it felt so good to be able to uh, work to help other people tell their stories and 
to really just build community. Yeah. Um, you know, non-discrimination is a very small step in the grand scheme of things. Um, right. There, truthfully, even after non-discrimination laws pass, um, not a ton of people actually feel like they can sue under them. That takes a lot of time and money to go through that process, but it does encourage organizations to not discriminate Mm -hmm. Uh, and the education like the community education of you know what does it mean to be trans and Mm -hmm. people's personal stories is i think really do a lot to prevent against discrimination Mm -hmm. uh, more than like the eventual law does Mm -hmm. and then it felt really cool to be able to see people that had come to that campaign as volunteers like Polana Belkin, who's now Rochester City Councilor mm-hmm. um, and was until recently the trans justice organizer with the ACLU. I met her when she was selling bubble tea at Rochester Pride or Portsmouth Pride. Um, she hadn't been politically active and then she started coming to trainings um, for the campaign and then eventually I got a job working on trans justice full time and Um, A lot of the other people that had been involved with the campaign then went on to fight for um, a better birth certificate change process, um, a non-binary ex-gender marker, um, there are better protections for students in schools, Mm -hmm. all kinds of things. So it felt really cool to be able to start that and then Mm -hmm. see the ripple effects go out um, through the community. Can, can we talk for a second a little bit about um, being non-binary and come to your experiences? Sure. I, have, I am a total open book. Perfect. So. All right. Because I want to get into that a little bit because I'm sure you've experienced some, some you know, not so comfortable situations and some probably hate and stuff like that. So can can you just tell me about... Can you tell me about your story about how you discovered that you were a non-binary person and then just kind of talk about your experiences a little bit? Yeah, so I remember, I think, I mean, not every non-binary or gender queer person, you know, feels uncomfortable with the body that they're born in necessarily, so I can only speak to my personal experience, but I felt very uncomfortable from the time I hit puberty. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember looking through all these puberty books that my grandma and my mom bought me, and knowing that my friends were really excited about all of these changes and me wanting none of it and yeah. <laughs> feeling really uncomfortable when people said things like, Oh, you're becoming a woman. Was it like, was it like a feeling, was a feeling of like anxiety or was it a feeling of like, I don't belong what I'm supposed to, like, I'm not supposed to be what they're telling me I'm going to be. Yeah. I, I felt, you know, I wanted my chest to stay flat gotcha. and then, um, you know, I felt uncomfortable with, you know, just all the language around it and people's perceptions of the whole thing. Um, but I didn't think there was anything I could do about it. So right. I just sort of buried it and went along with it. I, I saw like, you know, early like TLC documentaries that were very oriented around um surgery for trans people mm-hmm. and I remember seeing a, a trans man um, get top surgery a, a breast removal and um, being so jealous and wanting that so badly mm-hmm. but not thinking that that was something that I could do unless right. I was 
you know, a hundred percent a man through and through. Um, um, so yeah, I really just didn't feel like I fell into the two binary options that society gives you. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had, I, when I was, um, a couple years out of college, I, um, dated someone who was non-binary transmasculine and used he and they pronouns, um, or, or started using them more like a little bit after we had started mm-hmm. dating. And, um, you know, I felt a little bit, a little bit jealous that he like beat me to it. And like, I had, I couldn't say that I was feeling, you know, a little bit of that, mm-hmm. um, at the time. Um, and then, once he wasn't a part of my life anymore and sort of the floodgates opened up and I had just these overwhelming feelings and decided to tell everyone, you know, call me a person, not a woman, use mm-hmm. they, not she. And that made everything so much better. Um, and then I was also really fortunate um, to realize that I could get top surgery as a non-binary person. And so I realized that I wanted that when I was, around 24, 25, Mm -hmm. and um, was able to get that and then um, partially covered by insurance when I was on my mom's insurance before I turned 26, and Obamacare no no longer allowed me to stay on that, so I feel really lucky and privileged that I was able to access that, and my mom was supportive to let me use her insurance, um, and that was, you know, I feel like one of the best gifts I ever gave myself. Well, and when you really come in touch with who you truly are, it's almost like an, it's almost like a, um, relief, right? Do I, do I, do I describe that right? Is it, was it a relief? I mean, I'm obviously you were probably happy and excited, but probably more relieved than anything, right? Yeah, definitely a mix of all of those. Yeah. I, I really like the term. So sometimes in the trans community, we use the word gender dysphoria to describe the discomfort with, um, you know, not having your body match or how people perceive you match, like what you feel inside. Um, but the flip side of that, that I didn't hear until much later is gender euphoria. Mm-hmm. And that's like the positive of good feelings of coming from when you are affirmed and seen as you truly are. So, mm-hmm when someone uses the right pronouns for me, when someone says anything that's that's affirming, I feel a lot of, I feel more gender euphoria when people um, perceive me correctly than I do dysphoria. I, when people I will use your they pronouns from now on, I promise. Great. <laughs> I feel really bad now. <laughs> it's easy to forget when you aren't, you know, seeing somebody regularly and talking to them and about them all the time so covid could definitely i know that i've slipped up with with friends who have changed their pronouns during covid yeah so i'm guilty of it sometimes too it takes some practice yeah i mean so because like because i knew i knew that because i remember you said that now when uh during the Volinsky campaign and i or i remember reading your pronouns or something 
but I, I just, we just, we haven't, we haven't, t we've talked about a lot of stuff like through chat and stuff, but we haven't really talked about this, which is, I'm glad we're getting to talk about it because it's very important and I'm happy that I'm having a non-binary person on my podcast because I've gotten an heated arguments with people about how you know all of those people the people the people who call themselves that you know they're they're not they're they're mentally ill they're sick like blah 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 and you are a very eloquent intelligent person and prove that that is not true yeah and i mean there are a lot of a lot of people in and outside of the trans community that struggle with mental health stuff. Um, but that's totally separate from how you feel about your gender a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, you just want attention. Right. And that that's a bad thing, inherently. Um, or you're just trying to make people's lives harder. And, you know, of course, you know, I pick and choose my battles. Like, mm -hmm. um, I just took a an art class. It was it was cool. It was actually it was like a um, it was like a glass. Um, oh my god! Why am I brain farting here? I assume you'll cut this a little bit. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna uh, listen to it tonight and probably post it sometime tomorrow. Yeah, but it was. Um, it was a stained glass, like, um, cutting and art building class, um, that I took last weekend. Um, I'm going to make this really cool, like sun and moon and stars mm. thing. I'm, I'm excited about it, but like the, the art instructor there, there was like, um, you know, she, she used she for me, but I'm only going to see her like a handful of times. So I'm not going to. I'm just going to focus on the art and I'm not going to necessarily try to teach her my pronouns every single time. Right. You pick your battles. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a new thing for a lot of people. Right. You know, so it's hard to, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to like get those ingrained norms, you know, out of people's uh, psyches and out of their, uh, you know, to, to, you know, cause they're not used to it. So, um, and I know for hot, and I also think it's kind of, you know, with you were talking about, about how, um, I think there's an empathy issue, you know, like people think, oh, you just want attention, but some people just can't, they have an empathy issue. And I think that affects a lot of issues. Like when you see people on the right, um, you know, with that, that have good health care, but so they don't want their, their private insurance taken away. But then you have millions of people that don't have any health insurance at all. And they can't, they can't, they you can't empathize and they can't. So I think that's a problem with a lot of issues. And I can certainly see where it could be a issue with, um, this one in, in particular. Yeah, I think, you know, we did a lot of, of panels on the trans non-discrimination campaign yep. all across the state. Some of them were like libraries or churches, or um, we did one at Teetotaler Cafe. Um, that's just people sharing their stories and, and questions and answers. And um, I think that's way more important than any kind of, you know, gender 101, just listening yeah. to people. Listen to people, listen to their experiences, and I think um, 
doing that is much more effective than just like showing a PowerPoint on, you know, this is what gender identity is. You know what I mean? Listen, listen to how people got to where they are. Um, now to get people to do that is its own battle. Yeah, I'm a big communications nerd. I did. I love doing communications for the Volinsky campaign. Mm -hmm. I'm helping out New Hampshire youth movement with some communications planning right now. And um, like one of the things I always come back to is, you know, the facts are persuasive. Like you can tell people, oh, take climate change, for example. Oh, the Arctic is melting at this many degrees and and, like and you can show them. You can show them a, a graph of CO two in the atmosphere, and nah, they're not gonna. But that's not gonna get anybody new to take action. That's, right. right. That's only gonna. That might be, you know, what people who are already the choir are are gonna be motivated by. But uh, to be able to draw as many people into the movement to win, we need to. Oh, connect with yeah. people's emotions and values and stories and people need to see someone like them share a story that they resonate with so yeah that's what i really want to try to do on campaigns moving forward yeah um yeah i was i was pretty bummed when andy valinsky lost because he would have done some really awesome things for New Hampshire, especially with our property tax system. You know, being someone that works in uh, a public school in New Hampshire and seeing how um, high property taxes just shackle people. And then because it does that, it affects the services they get. Um, It's just, you know, we need that system. The system's not fair and it it, it sucks that he didn't, I think it had a lot to do with that you know, we took kind of touch on this earlier, but a lot of Granite Staters are just, they're just really stubborn and they're just going to believe what they believe. Yeah, I think he came, he came extremely close, 48%. Uh, right. I think he definitely. And I don't know if he would have beaten, I don't know if he would have beaten the governor, but I think he would give him a run, he would have given him a run, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think we need a, a culture of more candidates who are with the people running and not just who the party decides to appoint for a position you're next in line. I think right. we need people who are in deep with the grassroots mm-hmm. organizations that are doing the work. And that was the, one of the things that drew me to Andy, how, how much he's been listening to groups like Rights and Democracy, yep. New Hampshire Youth Movement, um, 350. Um, he's really a movement candidate. Yeah. Not I, and I also think I also think the biggest thing with with Andrew was I trusted him. I thought he would go in there and he would he would fight the best he could. You know, and I got, I don't feel that way. And I even vote for candidates sometimes where I don't feel that they're going to actually do that. But Andrew Valinsky was a guy that I knew would get in, if he got into the governorship, he would do his damnedest to try to fix these inequalities in our systems. Yeah, I heard that so many times, even from Republicans that totally disagreed with him. Yeah. They would say, like, 
I know that you are always going to tell me exactly where you stand and yep. not play games. And I have a ton of respect for that. Yeah. So I think that that's the kind of person that we need in office. And yeah. he has those same, I mean, you can say those same qualities about uh, Bernie Sanders. So like they have the same kind of the same qualities um, because Bernie definitely has that say, you know, yeah, and he's the Bernie of Bernie of New Hampshire for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I love Bernie, and he—he's definitely my—he's definitely my main man, you know, especially when it comes to federal politics, um, because he's singular. You know, he—he he said the same. He stood for the same things his entire life. He's been fighting for the same things his entire life, and there hasn't been a flip flop. There hasn't been like a change. Like he's been obnoxiously consistent, you know. So, um, I, and while I'm happy that Trump's not going to be president anymore. You know, um, I would have rather had Bernie than Biden. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I I think we're going to have to do a lot of work to move Biden. I yep. know that that's already happening in a big way. I know there's going to be another COVID relief bill coming soon after inauguration yeah. and which the people we need got in 2000 yeah we should have got in 2000 ex- except not 600 but yeah. we're gonna need to keep fighting for that i think it should be 2000 retroactively uh, i agree times over the course of i agree of the last year yep um and it i've been reading a lot about um you know how far biden might go on student debt cancellation yep. um you know the the biggest push has been for him to cancel student debt under fifty thousand. um now they're saying oh it might be like ten thousand. um but just cancel all of it there's going to be a lot of people that say it needs to be either or you know it needs to either be covid relief or or student debt relief and we can do both at the same time. Uh, of course, we need to do both at the same time. It's it's not it's not an either or type of situation. They're two different types of situations, um, both crises, you know, that need to be dealt with. The, the student, I know so many teachers that um, I work with that are just they play. They're they're gonna be paying their debt forever, and it's just not fair. Yeah, I graduated in 2012. And- I have around 10,000 um, in student debt left to pay, which is a lot less than a lot of people. Um, but even though I don't need 50,000 canceled, that's what I want to fight for. Yeah. There's a ton of people who mm-hmm. who need it and have way worse situations yeah. than I'm- I do. So. I'm still I'm still in school, so I haven't seen mine start to roll in yet. But I'm it'll it's not going to be a good time. That's for sure. Yeah, it's so ridiculous when we we you know put forward this myth that education can get you where you need to be, and it's not always like that if you're no. in a poor town that doesn't have enough property taxes to fund its schools you know mm-hmm. going back full circle to where we came from and mm-hmm. new hampshire has the highest college tuition in the country i know for for state school um like 
I'm I know that New Hampshire is gonna er, turn up pretty loud um, for student debt relief in a big way so I'm excited for that to happen I think that that would be a huge relief for so many people that are yeah. already struggling to pay their bills mm-hmm. um, so I wanted to ask you your feelings about what happened last Wednesday with the storm on the Capitol so I wanted to just get your thoughts on that um, and where your where, where your mind is um, regarding you know Trump was impeached today for the second time but um, how you're feeling and what are your thoughts yeah it was scary I I think some people expected something like that to happen yeah. sooner after after the election in November um, and you know we're lulled into a little bit of a, a, a sense of complacency after it happened in November or December um, I was definitely one of them um, yep. I, obviously obviously Trump, um, inspired that to happen and yep. is completely complicit and to be impeached. Um, and it's, it's not only important, you know, I think some people are saying, you know, why impeach him? It's, he's almost out of there anyways, but Precedent. I don't actually have all of the details right now, but there's a lot of benefits that he receives, like a pension, mm-hmm. um, if he is not impeached. Um, and so if he is successfully removed from office, not just impeached like he was yeah. previously, um, he loses access to a ton of money and safety and power. Um, so that's why it's really important it that is. he is removed from office before Biden. And I, th- I, I think it's important um, just for precedent, you know, for future for future people that are going to be the president of the United States. Like you should not be allowed to incite violence and still be able to be president. Like it shouldn't be a thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it all stems it's way bigger than Trump. I oh, mean, of course. White supremacy is the thing that we have to name, especially as white people who benefit yep. from the system. Yep. It's been created. White supremacy is the reason that they got away with it. It's not Absolutely. just white privilege. It's a display of white power. And yep. that's really the scariest piece of it. And so I agree. We all really need to call out white supremacy as the the deepest root of that. Not Trump, not Trump just any in, other Trump was just a he was just a uh, you know, a way for a representation of it. You know, he was he was a way for somebody for those people to clamor to. But definitely, white supremacy is the main is the main I would say enemy. You know, because it would I I can't help but think if it was um, um, Black Lives Matter protesters that tried to do that, and I don't think they would. But if they just say they did, how it, the police would have reacted much differently, in my opinion. And I think you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah. One other thing that I that I think is really interesting um, in that conversation, I feel like I saw a lot of good amount of people saying, like, um, you know, this is this is white terrorism um, of the Capitol, and, and that might seem like an easy frame that that makes sense a lot, but I saw a tweet um, 
by Leah, I think you pronounce her last name, Kayali. Mm. Um, she does digital comms for the ACLU of Massachusetts. And um, I just pulled up her tweet. She had a tweet that was like, as a comms person, this is really important to me. Language becomes policy. If we say we have a terrorism problem, even a white one, lawmakers will give us counterterrorism solutions. All of those will expand policing and surveillance that Mm -hmm. will ultimately harm us. On the contrary, if we call them white supremacists, naming their movement as what it is, it demands a solution specific to that problem. Mm -hmm. Truth-telling, reparations, facing our history as a nation founded on white supremacy and dismantling it. Terrorism is a label that is inherently dangerous in its vagueness. Um, but we can't decouple that term from the war on terror, mass surveillance, targeting Muslims, black people, etc. Yeah. Um, I think that that's just a really important, um, I think it's really important that we're all really intentional in the language that we use and thinking about what kinds of policy solutions that may or may not, you know, purposely or inadvertently lead to. Right. And that's I, something I'm trying to be more mindful of. Yeah, that's a great point. That is really. I'll try to try to be more mindful of that too, because we do need real substantive policy p- proposals in order to root this this white supremacy and systemic racism out of our country. And if we don't, it's just gonna. If we don't have real real policy change, it, it's just gonna keep happening and there or you know um the or situations like george floyd will just keep happening or brianna taylor or you know i you can we can go down the list of all of all the um black people that were unjustly unjustly killed by, by police and then you have a group of white supremacists that can storm the capitol and destroy the capitol and the cops let them exactly and as black lives matter and our state has said time and time again, New Hampshire is not innocent. No. There's so many people that think that we're free of these problems because we're a mostly white state. But the problem is that we're a mostly white state. Right. And we had 35 state legislators who voted against condemning the violence in D.C. on Wednesday when they were in session. We had um, a police, the police chief of Troy New Hampshire was at the Capitol during that, as was a yoga studio owner in Portsmouth who's been getting a lot of pushback on social media. And so we really need to look in our own backyards and make sure that people don't continue to hold the power that they've been given and we find new people to um, replace them in office or whatever position of, of power they they hold. I couldn't agree more, and I, it's interesting you and you mentioned the police chief in Troy because my wife and her mother are actually from Troy. My mother, my wife, mother-in-law still lives in Troy, and my wife grew up there. And um, they were actually booted out of the Troy uh, community Facebook page because they were posting stuff in a p- opposition to the police chief that was at the Trump um, at the uh, storm of the Capitol. And it's turned into this whole big explosion online. So um, I just yeah, you should you have every right to shake wow. your head. Yeah. So my um, my mother-in-law, who's a professor at Keene State. 
um, and has been for a long time, posted some stuff, you know, saying how despicable it was that the police chief was down there at that and all that. And uh, then my wife posted some stuff too, and they were kicked out of the group. Yeah, that is not the first I've heard of small town New Hampshire Facebook groups being filled with a lot of apologists for white supremacy or it's so true. Um, Apparently, my wife just told me that apparently all they did was post the article in it and they were kicked out of the group. Just facts. But yeah, like the the fact the fact that you know the police chief was part of the insurrection. And he had Trump signs in his office, member. And as she just informed me, he had Trump signs in his office. Of course he did. <laughs> yeah, he had Trump signs in his office, and he put all lives matter stickers on the police cruisers, on all on all the police crew cruisers. Wow. Yeah. And there and people and they like they were they were organizing a um, like a, an appreciation. I don't even know his name. I can't remember it. Dave Ellis. They were uh, they're organizing a um, appreciation to Dave Ellis like march or you know get together. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Oh, uh, so <laughs> my wait. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I, I tried to join the group so that my wife could like look at the, the page still and they denied me so so yeah gotta make some fake accounts for that maybe <laughs> huh. not a bad idea yeah um so like yeah so it, it's pretty interesting to see how it's it it, it, it it affects our very own communities, you know, it's in our own communities, especially somebody who um, lives and works in Claremont and works at the school in Claremont it is definitely here and it is definitely a culture that it's definitely going to be hard to break, you know, and it's it, like you said, it's going to take all of us coming together and fighting for it. Yeah, I mean, the things that we learn in history class um, from a very young age are geared toward upholding systems of power like white supremacy. And we, I think a big part of that, that, uh, you know, educator friends <laughs> need to take part in is, uh, you know, rewriting history to be more critical toward people that have been oppressed throughout mm -hmm. history. So, uh, or be more critical of, of, you know, the people who have been the oppressors and to, to look through the lens of and to, people who have been. And to understand that history repeats itself. And if we don't learn from our mistakes, the same types of mistakes that have already been made are likely to happen again. Right. We learn, you know, that... Lincoln freed enslaved people, but there were many people that did not learn they were free until June Juneteenth, which is what Juneteenth celebrates. And so right. that was not something I learned until a couple of years ago. Me too. I learned that like we last gotta, year. We've got to relearn our history. <laughs> yeah, def definitely. Um, the last thing I want to talk to you about is kind of the, the pandemic and how it's kind of affected everybody's everyday life, affected people's mental health, affected, um, like, you know, 
it's such a, like, I was talking about this the other day with one of my uh, co-workers about how, you know, even just the fact that if you get a stuffy nose now or you cough, like, you're thinking, oh my God, well, I, I, do I have COVID? Am I going to die? Um, you know, and again, it was another thing that was terribly mismanaged by the Trump administration and it caused a lot, I think, caused a lot of pain. Um, didn't cause all of it. There would have been pain either way, but I think the fact that, you know, he didn't listen to his briefings at the beginning, he wouldn't acknowledge that it was a real thing until it got really bad. Um, you know, the testing was slow. Um, so, like, we can talk about the policy part of COVID and we can kind of talk about the mental health part of COVID. So, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I've done a whole lot of, of policy stuff. Um, I think from, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, maybe it's time to get a little bit more personal. I, when COVID hit and I was working on the Volinsky campaign, it was Andy's birthday and he was supposed to have a big birthday fundraiser out on the seacoast and everything was canceled and, um, a lot of our plans completely went out the window and me being in a communications role and having to stay extremely on top of every new bit of breaking news felt so overwhelming. I'm sure. Like, like taking it in and then feeling like I didn't have enough time to really analyze it or you know, weigh different decisions before we had to decide on something. Um, it was really, really hard. You know, it was, it's really hard to feel responsible for the, the outer facing communications of a, of a high level <coughs> campaign like that that I had never been on before. So um, I actually ended up leaving the campaign um, in July before the September. Yeah, I know. I remember I was sad. Yes. I, I um, finally booked an appointment with my um, primary care physician um, after uh, feeling super, super anxious. And, you know, I've been on, on meds for anxiety that um, Me too. we're not doing enough to... to combat you know an extra dose of of covid life and um she pointed out to me you know the difference between you know a simple like anxiety symptoms test that i had taken and like six months prior to what it was like now and it really made me realize that i needed to just give my brain a break from feeling so overwhelmed for a couple of months and that was really hard and scary to do especially mm -hmm. in the midst of a pandemic and not having job security and not knowing what came next but i really needed to take care of of me and i just couldn't handle a scene through the last couple months of a campaign at that high level so um at the end of the day you got to do what's right for yourself what was that? I said at the end of the day, you got to do what's right for yourself. I mean, if 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 you you're not you know you're not going to help anybody if you don't feel like you can do your job to the highest ability. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like so much of of working in this movement, you know, we a burn ourselves out super hard and yeah. convince ourselves that you know 
this is my responsibility and I have to stick with it. But, um, you know, I was not the best person to be doing that job at that point whatsoever. Um, and other people were able to step in and, um, I feel like, you know, then I was able to, but I did feel ready to get back to, to work in the movement a couple months later and mm-hmm. got a job with New Hampshire Youth Movement and mm-hmm. did a final push of, of phone banking for the Volinsky campaign with them. And so that felt really good that I was still able to be Help. part of it and not feel like, oh no, I'm not doing anything to elect the person that I think should be governor. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, it's okay to take a break is the thing that I tell myself and others a lot. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to talk to you also about um, the the the, sipu- st- the situation that was going on in Manchester or Concord. Was it the homelessness situation? Um, because you were like right in the midst of that, weren't you? Yeah. I mean, that was just something that like, you know, very... I almost went down, but I just couldn't make make it work. But yeah, it was. I mean, so I had just heard from from friends in Manchester that the um, the police were going to clear out the homeless encampment that was by the that was on the property of the uh, Superior Courthouse, right next to Veterans Park in Manchester. Um, where people were supposed to be protected as long as they were on state property. Um, but uh, really, there is just so much stigma and prejudice against homeless people, and people yep. would rather push homeless people out of sight um, rather than give real solutions. And to make a very, very long story short, you know, we I did a lot, um, you know, Monday morning of that week, um, about 50 people showed up, uh, were standing all around the perimeter, invited the press to come, um, said that we stand in solidarity with these people who want to stay here, who have every right to, mm-hmm. not been provided with adequate other options. Um, a lot of people uh, were able to provide mutual aid through food, warm clothes, coffee, um, really whatever people needed, tents, mm-hmm. um, tarps, stuff like that, um, medical supplies, is, um, you know, we really uh, were able to, to clean up the camp and provide people with things that they needed over the course of that week and to have a, a solid 24-hour presence just occupying the space mm-hmm. uh, to send a stop, message. Um, the, the eviction from taking place but unfortunately um, after a week of sustained protests and getting a ton of attention from the state press um, about 30 state troopers rolled up Friday morning and um, erected a fence um, all around the area were throwing people's belongings in plastic bags including medicine um, one um, woman who was living at the camp had antidepressants that she needed thrown away. They just assume everything is trash. There was another man who um, was living at the encampment who did have a job and who was left to go to his job for the day. And his friend was saying, and he's going to come back and find this place totally trashed with this fence and put up and not know what to do. And um, some of us helped 
lots of people moved to friends' houses. They, the mayor of Manchester was forced to open up um, some more shelter options where people did not have to be sober. Unfortunately, prior, the only real options were um, for people to be completely sober in their housing, even like not even allowing cigarettes, which um, is not going to work out for a whole lot of people for right. a whole lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about a week later, the Board of Aldermen in Manchester voted to authorize a million dollars for um, a building that had been completely empty for a long Yeah, I remember time. hearing about this um, and getting mad about it. Yeah, for that shelter. And so at first people were really excited and then um, big real estate developer Ben Gamash, who owns a bunch of other buildings in Manchester, including the building next to the proposed shelter, immediately dropped $1.1 million of his own money specifically to block. There's the big club again. Yeah, it's... That is just. I f- cannot imagine anything more evil than yeah, no. specifically using a million dollars to stop homeless people from getting a shelter that they need. Disgusting. Um, it's, it's just there's no other word I can use to describe it. That's absolutely disgusting. I can't even imagine the thought process of saying, "Oh, I'm going to use one million dollars of my own money to stop people from homeless people from getting homeless, and not even not from being homeless, and not even." Um, and not not even need the building, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, Disgusting. You know, now they've they've authorized the old police building as a temporary shelter, so, which ironically is just diagonal across the street from where the encampment was. And, so, what's the situation uh, there right now? Do you know, like, are they just? Um. Yeah. Some people are living in, like down by the river in Manchester. Um, other other places in the city um Sununu was forced to um start this um state commission on housing and homelessness that he appointed Andy Volinsky to and so um a lot of the people who were involved um with the encampment are you know they're in, in conversation with Volinsky about how you know we can get the message of the people on the ground who have really been close to what's been going on um, through to him. Um, you know, I don't have particularly high hopes for any Sununu commission. Nope. Um, he certainly likes to start these commissions and stack them with mostly his friends and, you know, a couple of our friends. Yep. Um, but, uh, you know, we still got a do all we can. I think to, the, to work with, and I think the, not only was a, the governor not good at solving that problem, I think he's, you know, especially over the last few months, he's been pretty bad when it comes to COVID because COVID's pretty bad in New Hampshire. Yeah, he was way too late on on a mask mandate. Yep. He has, um you know, been incredibly slow to roll things out here, but he looks nice on TV and he cracks dad jokes and he, That's right. and he comes across warm and friendly and not like the kind of guy Trump is. And he has just perfected that brand in a really particular way that we need to call out before he runs for Senate. Um, yep, because that's next. He's probably going to run against Maggie Hassan. Yeah. 
Um, but you're right. He is ready to call him out and to not have him come across as just this nice, you know, chill dad vibes kind of guy that he's been selling himself as. And got and got reelected twice because of that. And he, God, when when he when he first off when he when I listen to his briefings, I can't believe I just look at him and I can tell I can't believe a word he says. Number one. Um, but he definitely has that, you know, he, you're right. He cracks dad jokes. He's chill. He, he thinks he's cool, you know, and that, that, um, definitely, you know, can get people to try to, to uh, vote for him and think, oh, he's not that radical. He's not that bad. You know, um, he's definitely perfected that. Yeah. There's a lot of politicians that people don't necessarily agree with, but, on a policy level, but they make them feel good and right. they feel like somebody they could be friendly with. And at the end of the day, that's what a lot of people, that's the last thing people think about before they go into the voting booth. So we have a lot of work to do. To, yeah. We need uh, to get, we need to get, we need to, we need to get rid of uh, that. <laughs> you know what I mean? We need to vote for people because of their the the policies they want to see implemented because they want to work for the people. You know, not because not because you know they make you feel good and and they not they're almost they almost don't tell you the bad news. You know, that's what I feel like he's done. Like especially over the last couple months, he like doesn't tell you the bad news. He only tells you the good news. And he uses a lot of words and phrases like flexibility and opportunity when he's talking about things like charter schools, um, for example, that are like, oh, you know, this is a this is a new and shiny new option um, rather than actually like explaining why it's good. Yeah. So I don't know. I have a lot of. Uh, I could. I could go off. We could do a whole other episode on on Sununu. We can do a full episode on Sununu, but I usually like to keep these to an hour, and we've been going for an hour and three minutes. So, um, just because I keep them to an hour, just because I don't, I want people to listen. You know what I mean? And I don't want, uh, I don't want them to feel overwhelmed. Um, but. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I definitely want you to be on my podcast again, yeah? Yeah, of course. Have me back anytime. Let me know know, other people that you're looking for. would love to send more people with good stories your way. Absolutely. I would definitely be willing to uh, send anybody, you know, you, you know that you think would be... Um, like I'll talk to I'll talk to politicians I'll talk to organizers I'll talk to educators I'll talk to you know anybody who has a story and an experience you know yeah all right thank you Linz thank you Matt yes things are going well for you and I hope that uh, you stay COVID negative 